the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. Hour number two here on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. There were um, some remarks made by my previous guest in relationship to what do we call it? I don't know what other label we put on it, but the American Holocaust. Is that fair? Uh, with with no means to, by any means, take away from uh, the horror of what happened in Europe during World War II. Uh, but when you stand back and look at the fact that there are over 60 million children that were denied life because in 1973 the Supreme Court said, right to privacy, yeah. That's a good excuse. And here we sit, 40-plus um, years later, and facing the scourge of what has happened in the ensuing years. One of the big issues here at hand, I think, is how do we go about educating our children on what the truth is? There is so much propaganda out there and such a push by the abortion rights movement. I mean, we just went through a court case here in relationship to pro-life centers in California that California law wanted to insist that they all post signs letting women know that they had the right to an abortion if they wanted to choose that, as if somehow women don't know that that's an option. But of course, allowing the opposite message of women also have an option to carry the child to term, keep it, carry the child to term, put it up for adoption. The mandate to post that side of the equation at abortion clinics across the state of California, that was never part of the deal. So we live in a time and a place that is filled with these messages everywhere. How do we go about training up the next generation of pro-lifers to understand fact from fiction and to be prepared to continue this battle. Joining me now is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And Brian, this is very important. I mean, uh, when we think of it, we, we're, we're suffering the effects of bad choices that took place in the 1970s. We're beginning to see some headroom or headway in terms of reversing a lot of this. Then we look at the recent um, activities on, on the abortion rights issue in New York City, and we think to ourselves, my goodness, we seem to uh, win in some corners and lose big in others. How do we help young people in particular understand what's really, really at risk here and prepare them to continue to carry this battle on for the future? Craig, good to be on with you again, and, and uh, that's exactly the challenge we're facing. The challenge that the Right to Life movement is facing, not just with our kids, and that's very important that we, that we help our children to understand the basic premises on which this debate is about. And I know that the uh, Bay Area Sunday School Convention just took place, and we're talking about the influence of Christianity on this nation. But it's important to recognize what the founders said about the principles that are employed in this nation. And they said specifically of the right to life that it's a self-evident truth, that it's revealed to the laws of nature and of nature's God. And so when we invoke the right to life, we're not actually invoking our personal theology. And I think that's where a lot of pastors and a lot of church leaders that should be bolder, they actually tend to shy away from really being bold about the right to life, because somehow they think, well, that's just my personal theology. That is not what the right to life is about. It's a self-evident truth revealed in nature, and as all true science. True science looks at objective facts, not personal theology or personal opinion or personal facts. You have to look at objective facts. 
And that's why those laws were in place up until 1973. Lawmakers had to deal with the abortion issues for a long time. It was the Supreme Court, as you said, that threw that out the window based on feelings about privacy and ignored the objective facts that had been the basis for every one of those laws. So I think where we as parents, in inspiring our children to be pro-life, I actually think it's important. I'll, I'll be personal here. I think you need to be, if you haven't sent your kid to a Christian school, then you need to homeschool. Because if you're surrendering your children to get their understanding of life, if you're surrendering them to the government school system, you have made your task doubly hard. But if you're involved in your child, even if you do have your child in a public school, get involved with them personally and go on walks and point out to them that the God that you worship is the God that made all things and has revealed himself in nature, Romans 1, 20, that the invisible nature of God has been revealed. He's revealed his existence to everyone through nature. Romans 1, 20 is very explicit in that. Again, in, in the Psalms, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful of? I mean, yet you visit him. So when we consider nature, again, as you might say, human beings, as observers, because that's what science, real science, is observing, truly observing. Again, in Psalm 19, it says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God. There is no nation where that language isn't understood day unto day out of speech, night unto night. So nature is the one revealing these basic principles. And our founder said, very specifically, that the right to life is a gift from your Creator. It's not a gift from your government. But it does invoke government's duty to protect your right to be alive, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So my recommendation on the right to life is, is point, point out nature to your kids. Talk about why God's revealed His truth in nature, and that truly, uh, I, I want to say one more thing. I just, you're so patient, Craig, but I think it's so important for all of us that we actually are not a secular nation, and people make that mistake. We're a non sectarian nation. And that's a very important distinction because our nation basically is asserting hey, we all believe there's some God that made all this. That's the starting point. And if you don't agree with me, then take some money out of your pocket and read a coin or a dollar bill. This nation says, you know what? There's a God. And that's the starting point. We're not going to go further into the theology, but if you believe there's a God, then back to the scriptures for Christians, you're a fool. If you say there is no God, if you say that in your heart, then you cannot understand truth. There is no truth without there being someone who designed this. So for inspiring our kids, and that's what we did, there's some great books, uh, even just talking about fetology with your kids. You don't need a special book. Just point out how you are fearfully and wonderfully made and point out the objective facts. Every single cell in your child's body is, is a combination of, of the mother and father. They're unique individuals. They've never existed before in human history. Every human being is unique, and nature says that. It isn't my personal theology. That's an objective fact. So the facts are on our side, and facts are, are terrible things to us. Brian, how do we go about combating a lot of the confusing rhetoric that's out there? And we understand that quite often this is being employed intentionally so, so that when young people hear discussions about, uh, well, these choices, they're, they're personal choices, it's a matter of religious faith or, uh, you know, the fundamental ideals of American exceptionalism includes democratic choice, that we get a chance to ultimately be, be responsible, yes, for our own choice but they are our choices nevertheless. And so they try to couch this argument not necessarily in life or death terms, not necessarily in the value of a child created in the image of God, not in the reality of taking of another's life, but rather in these lowering, almost altruistic uh, terms that seem to equate this as fundamental part of democracy. How do we combat those kinds of lies? 
Well, I think it's very important. You're going to get those arguments. As you said, that's, that is de rigueur for the culture's media, and that's why having a media that shines out truth, stations like KFAX and other resources, but that's the message of our culture. Yeah, but. Okay, yeah, but. What about choice? Yeah, but what about a woman's feelings? What about her situation? What about, what about, what about? And we have to come back to objective facts. And I love how Lincoln, Lincoln actually had the same problem, and we may not understand it. In retrospect, we say, oh, yeah, well, slavery is evil. We all know that. Oh, no. You don't understand American history if you don't understand the challenges that that Lincoln faced and how he got this nation to do what it did legally wasn't the civil the civil war was designed to stop Lincoln's efforts if you understand what happened in American history that was the south trying to stop Lincoln changing the laws because the republicans had gained ascendancy and their entire premise their entire they came into being in order to put into law legal protection for slaves. And they had to deal with so many arguments. I would recommend, if you haven't, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. They were meant to be read. Every town in the nation during those debates had a newspaper that was either pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Literally every American town, village, and hamlet had newspapers that published the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Very few people witnessed them, but those debates now have become a standard in American history. Read what Lincoln said. He, I, I just quoted him earlier about self-evident truths. And if you listen to Douglas, Douglas used rhetoric very powerfully. He was one of the most powerful orators of his time. And yet Lincoln was able to rebut him by turning back to objective facts and self-evident truths, not cultural truths. And cultural truths can be whatever you say. And if it's a religious truth, yeah, well, I'm not your domination. So quit pushing your religion down our throats. But, well, this isn't about my religion. And we've talked about This is about self-evident objective facts. This is about are we killing human beings? And Lincoln himself used the fact in, in uh, one, of the, one of the great debates at Alton, Illinois, he several times used the phrase right to life regarding the slave that the slave's right to life cannot even be assured by the government. It's given by God. God gives us the right to life. He turned to the founders. It's the duty to protect that. And that's why government exists, is to protect that right, but the government doesn't give it. And that was essential to keep people looking at the facts. Is this a human being or not? And we have to be willing to endure the, and you get, you and I know, we get scorned for disagreeing with the culture. But there's certain issues, whether it be what happened in Nazi Germany, what happened in slavery, what's happening in human abortion and now euthanasia. If you don't stand for what's objectively happening, that human beings are being killed by doctors, so-called doctors, medicine is being used to selectively kill human beings since 73. And our nation, in refusing to deal with that, is is tolerating a great evil. And unless you bring it back to the objective facts, you're going to lose. If you bring it back to, well, I believe, if you, if you start your argument with, I believe, you just lost. You need to point out, no, this is objectively a human being. That same baby can inherit property. The same baby you can kill can be a, an heir. There's something wrong in our law, and that's why Sandra Day O'Connor, when she dissented to Roe in the Casey decision, she said that Roe versus Wade has no foundation in law or logic. That same baby has rights, unless you want to kill him or her. Just because she's a girl, let's kill her. So there's so many absurdities to justifying abortion, and yet that are employed every day, and unless we point them out, we're going to lose. So it is our job to look at the facts, to equip others, particularly our kids, because our children now are being subjected to some deceitful cultural messages. That unless we point out really how nature, when, my, when I pass on, my kids are still going to be surrounded by God's creation. That truth, even if I had never existed, 
God's truth exists, and he's revealed it to everyone. So we want to be able to, we want to be apt to teach, to help others who've been taken captive in the futility of their mind, to do the will of the evil one, to kill human beings wantonly. We want to teach them, no, that's, that's actually a human being, a vulnerable human being that you protect in other aspects of the law. This is a, a disordered way of thinking in justifying the killing of this human baby that people want. There are lines, years long, adoptive couples will adopt children, and they're waiting years, and they'll adopt handicapped children. They'll adopt, any of the reasons you want to give for killing a kid, there's a couple waiting and longing to care for that child. So we have to bring back to the fact, what has happened to Roe? It has challenged objective reality. Our laws used to be based in objective truths, not personal political truths, or even religious. It's not based in my theology. You don't actually know which particular church I go to or what its theology is. It's irrelevant. It's an objective reality. God made objective reality. And I believe Christians' responsibility, our chief responsibility are to be stewards of reality, because God made reality. Some insights from Brian Johnston talking about the importance of training up a child in understanding what objective truth really is and differentiating between that and what has essentially been since 1973 a massive con job. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information available on the web at nrlc.org. All right, 624, we're going to get you caught up in some traffic here. The latest with Michael Bennett. Michael, what's up? Like it or not, the workplace is changing. But does it work for you? The breakneck pace at which technology is impacting the workplace is happening faster and faster than ever before. When years passed, it sometimes took decades before real change came. Now it happens seemingly overnight. For example, offices use the same basic typewriter to communicate from its inception in 1867 up until the 1980s. But the technology that began to replace the typewriter in the 80s bears little resemblance to the communication technology we use today. And as technology rapidly transforms the workplace, many of these changes will create dramatic shifts in the long-term future of work. For instance, reports estimate that between 45 to 55 percent of current jobs could eventually be lost to automation, with 7 percent of that job loss coming as soon as the year 2025. How can one hope to compete in this changing environment, let alone survive? You might not be getting that gold watch for working with the same company for 30 years like your grandfather did, but there are things you can learn that will not only help you survive in today's workplace, but thrive. We're joined in studio by career coach Dr. David Petrove. Dr. Petrove has been in the field of education for more than 35 years and did his doctrinal graduate study at the University of Arizona. He does lectures and seminars across the country and operates his own consulting firm, David Petrove Coaching. Dr. David, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Today we begin answering the fundamental question, what exactly is a career and are there differences between a career and a job? And, Dr. Petrovay, in that regards, a lot of people know what a job is. People talk about having careers or career goals. But what are the distinctions between the two, and do they really count? Is it really a critical difference between the two? Well, I think, Craig, it's a critical difference in terms of how we perceive, how we conceptualize the whole idea of a career. Uh, You'll often hear people talk about, well, I'm making a career change. Well, what exactly does that mean? So I thought it might be a good idea to just begin with the idea of, so why do we work to begin with? What's, what's the importance of this in our lives? In our last program, we spent time talking about the evolution of work, how it began, what it led to, and some ideas about what might be happening in tomorrow's world of work. So I think it's always good to create a framework. So when we think about the reason why people work, one of the most obvious reasons for even having a career is to generate income. If you ask people in a poll, why do you work? Usually the number one answer is to earn money. And as we spoke the last time, it costs money to live to cover our expenses that cover our needs. 
So that's generally one of the top reasons why people enter the world of work and have a career. So what are some other reasons why people decide that they want to have this career? Well, sometimes it's to do what they were called to do. And there are numerous books out there about answering your call. What is it that innately appeals to you in terms of the work that you do, your purpose in life? That sense of vocation. Right, the the calling, the vocation. Then the other is a need to be part of a social network. We are social creatures. We like the idea of having others around us. Those of us who work in isolation, like myself, who are self-employed, we seek out other ways to fill that void. We'll network with other people who do the same type of work to bounce ideas off of one another. Another reason is to develop new skills. As we know, the world is progressing in terms of changes in the type of work that we do, and we need to develop skills commensurate with what the job is asking for. To be of service to others is another way for answering why we work. Basically, everything we do is of service to others. It just wears a different outfit based upon who we are and what we're here to do, what we're good at, what our interests are. So clearly, service is important. To have a sense of security. I think that a sense of security is something that in today's day and age is going to be disappearing. We've talked about how quickly jobs change. The idea of someone getting that gold watch for 50 years of service, that's pretty much gone today. You're just really not seeing that occur. Why? Because we were talking about the Fortune 500 companies and how they're disappearing. The ones that were there 60, 70 years ago, how many of them are still out there today? So it's about the idea of making yourself marketable. That is part of the idea of a sense of security. To have concrete ways of defining what success is. Oftentimes, we define how successful we are based upon how successful our careers are going. America is one of the few places where one of the first questions that you're asked upon meeting someone is, and what do you do for a living? A big part of our identity is based on what we do and how successful we are at doing it. And finally, to feel satisfied and happy. And what we also know is if you look at the people who are currently working in this country, at least 50% of them are not happy doing what they're doing. Now, they may have some other reasons why they do what they do, but the idea of waking up in the morning and looking forward to going to work, it's just not there for them. So we want to start again with why do we work? And if you've decided that one of these is what fits you, this may be the basis of what constituted your career. So what is the difference between a career and a job? We talked about people's making a career change. Actually, as we talk, we're going to find that it's not really a career change. It's just a change in career direction. Your career relates to a range of aspects in your life, learning, and work. It's basically the sum total of all that you do. The word career came from a 16th century French word, carrière, meaning a road. And when you think about it, you begin your travel on a road at a certain point in your life, in this respect related to work. And you proceed along that road. For any of you who have ever been in an automobile, you know that there's no such thing as a road that is completely straight. You've got twists, you've got turns, you've got intersections, you've got forks. You need to make decisions as you encounter any of these. And this is where the idea of career change comes into play. It's the idea of making a decision as to where that basic career, that road, is headed right now in your life. We consciously choose that direction based upon what lies before us. It's more than just the specific jobs that you hold in much the same way as a road is more than a section of pavement beneath it. Those are just the building blocks for it. In today's world, people are changing jobs much more frequently than they did in the past. For the millennials, they may be changing jobs every two or three years. Again, it's still part of their career path. 
but it's going to have a lot more of those sections of pavement. Detours, forks in the road, um, maybe a bit of a side street for a while that you find yourself on. Sometimes I would suppose, much like being misled by Google Maps, you can maybe head down a road that really wasn't the right choice. And I've been down those Google Map roads before where in some cases I thought, oh, this is the perfect job for me at the time. And three months later, what was I thinking? But the good news is, like getting misled by Google Maps, you can always backtrack. You can always make a shift in direction to get back on that main road again. Absolutely. And it's always the question that you ask of yourself, what did I learn from this? What fit for me and what didn't fit? And if it didn't fit for me, why? And what would I do differently in the next decision that I make? So as you were saying, it's always beneficial. No matter what we choose to do, we'll learn something from it. Then the other term that we use is the word field. So your field refers to the industry that your career is following at that time. So when you think about different fields, you would have arts and entertainment, communications, business, medicine, government. So for instance, someone could be working in the environmental career field. This isn't your actual job title. That would be your duties, such as, for instance, if it was in the environmental field, maybe being a forester or an environmental engineer. Each of these fields is going to require a different set of skills and training. Prior to the work that I do now, I was in the field of education, and I did that for 34 years across a variety of job titles that I held within that. So again, you can work in the same place within that industry and perform a number of different functions. Then we have the term occupation. This is still different than a job. Occupations are a subset of a larger construct of career. So your occupation is a position that requires a specific training in order to perform the expected tasks. That might be a doctor, a carpenter, a teacher. These people will make several different changes during their work life. So we narrowly think of work as a position in which we're currently employed, and that's what we would refer to as an occupation. So when a person changes a position, there's a time of transition that goes along with that. Finally, we come to what is a job. Well, that's a piece of work for which you receive pay. So it includes specific tasks required for that position, and this is typically what is involved in what we call a job description. So when you're looking for work, you'll look at a job posting. That is related only to one specific set of tasks. And we know that jobs have a shelf life, and it's based on the needs of the organization and the individual. Most of the time, those two coincide, but not always. Organizations may decide that they need to reinvent themselves, and it's no longer a fit for you. Or through your training and experience, you decide that your needs are no longer going to be met by the company that you work for. So as I said, for today's millennials, they will typically have a job for maybe two years or even less, and then they're out looking for the next opportunity, and that's really the way that they look at it. So we need to think about those nine-to-five jobs that were there in the past. Many of those were what we consider traditional employment, and it's important for us to develop a more comprehensive idea of what work entails today. Our conversation with career coach Dr. David Petrove continues after this. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. 
As we continue our conversation, Dr. David, give us a point of clarification. We spoke earlier about the notion of a career or a career path and how that sometimes we can take a fork in the road, maybe head off into a direction that wasn't necessarily best suited for us, our skill set, or just didn't give us a sense of fulfillment. But when we talk about the overarching question of a career path, what exactly are we speaking of? So basically, it's the route of work that a person takes from their very first job till they make a decision that they're no longer going to work, and we commonly refer to that as retirement. Your career path is influenced by the training and the development and the ability to capitalize on what we refer to as transferable skills. When you're able to organize, that's a transferable skill that can be practiced in a number of work settings. So it's learning what you're good at and how you take that to each of the positions that you're hired to do. And this can occur either in one company or across companies. So what is it that contributes to the direction that my career would take me? For many of us, especially those of us who are baby boomers, it was the ideas that our parents had for us. So my parents, especially my mother, had an idea of what type of work she thought that I should do. And her belief was I would be good at being a marine biologist because I was good in science and good in math. She knew I was going on to college. First of all, I lived in Pittsburgh, which did not lend itself to an environment for marine biology. We weren't close to the ocean. The schools that provided an education in this area weren't local. But I decided at the university that I did attend that I would start out with marine biology. Well, as you were talking about experience being the best teacher, once I took my first college biology and chemistry course, they redefined my career path because (laughs) it was the first time I had ever received a D in a course. And I thought, if this is any indication of where this is headed, uh, this is a sign kind of opens up the notion that there's a difference between what you may be interested in and what you're gifted in. Right. And again, this is definitely something our listeners need to pay attention to. The idea of what you may be good at is not necessarily what you do for a living. It could just simply be a talent that you have, and then it becomes incorporated into the work. It's not the primary task that you perform. Next would be your own desire as to the type of work that you want to pursue. So when I realized that marine biology was probably not my best choice, I decided that psychology would be something that I would pursue. And that is where I ended up completing my college degree, getting a diploma in psychology. In those days, having a degree in psychology didn't take you very far because they said, well, If you have a degree in psychology, your choices in 1970 are you can either go to Vietnam or you can work in retail. Not (laughs) Not very promising options. No, (laughs) they really weren't. So that meant, you know, do not pass go until you make a new decision, which was to go to graduate school. And that's where I pursued education. The other one is societal needs. And actually, my choice to go into education was based on the fact that there was a teacher shortage at the time. I finished an entire master's degree in less than a year. Wow. I started the class in September. The following September, I was working in a classroom. And I suppose that also pretends to the notion that sometimes as we are making not only educational choices but career path choices, it's a question of striking while the iron is hot, that a door of opportunity is open that seems to be a good fit, and sometimes you need to move and take advantage of that opportunity in a timely fashion. Right. And again, another contribution to the direction a career would take you would be new opportunities. As technology opens up, that's going to create new opportunities for people. And so it's being aware of where things are headed. What are trends in the various fields? The next question people would ask, so how would I even know what type of occupation to pursue? There are a couple of ways that you can approach this. One is to start with a why. Where does your passion lie? This is a term that we hear constantly. What's your passion? What is it that you just love to do? 
And oftentimes when I work with clients, they say to me, I'm clueless about what my passion is. And we have to look at what excites them about life. And that generally starts that discussion about your passion. What is it that if you could do every day where money was no object, you couldn't wait to wake up in the morning to get started doing it? So this really calls for a degree of sort of going out and sitting on a rock for a couple of days, engaging in a degree of introspection to really ascertain what are your hot buttons. Because as you point out, not everybody knows. You might look at career choices that were taken by members of your family, your parents, that may or may not necessarily excite you. And perhaps you've never really taken that personal inventory to ascertain exactly what gets you cooking. Yeah, absolutely. Again, as I said, people will often be clueless as to What's my passion? What is that excitement? And does a lot of this end up leading to the notion of a tremendous degree of dissatisfaction in one's career choice or a direction of employment because you really haven't taken the time to do the personal inventory? I think that's a big part of it. There was a Greek philosopher who gave us great advice with two words, know thyself. So the more you know yourself before you begin to even make these choices, the more likely you'll be to make a choice that takes you in a direction that is going to be satisfying and a source of happiness for you. There's this whole idea, again, of what's your purpose in life? What drives or motivates you? Motivators can come from a variety of sources. Some people are motivated by money, some by fame, some by the need to contribute to the greater good of society. There's no right or wrong. It's just what drives you. And again, what motivates you to get up in the morning? And finally, what's your vision of the future? This is, again, something that's difficult for people, especially in this day and age, because it used to be that people would have 10-year plans. The best you can do now is a five-year plan for where you see your life, because so much is changing so quickly. So that's about the furthest I would ever take a client. In some cases, they say, the best I can do is six months from now. And again, you keep putting one foot in front of the other with what this vision is, and you're on your path. After you look at the why, look at the what. What can I do to live out my why? And again, this is something that listeners can be doing on their own based upon the conversation we're having today. Look at what it is that your passion, what motivates you, what's your vision for the future, and what are the types of things that you could be doing in today's world that meet that need. After you come up with the why and the what, the next step would be how. What steps would I need to take in order to achieve my what? What does that process look like? What's my blueprint for achieving my what? And how do I account for changes in my plan? Because again, as we were talking about that road that you take, you come to that fork and you find out that all three of those next sections of road are blocked. It requires a detour. So what would your detour look like that would get you on your path again? Now, sometimes people will talk about the fact, well, I'm off my path. You're never off your path. It's just looking different, perhaps, from what you originally thought it would be. And if your goal is to do some specific type of work, then how do you use that detour to get you back there? Important things to think about. Finally comes your when. What's your time frame for achieving your what? And oftentimes, this can be a challenge for people. If it's the idea of getting a degree that would lead to employment, you have to take a look at the amount of time, realistically, that it would take to complete that degree. If you wanted to be a doctor, you would have to have four years of college, you'd have to go to medical school, the internship, everything that goes with it before you actually can hang up your shingle that has the sign, doctor in session. Again, you have to take a look at what it is that you want in life and what's it going to take to get there. Our conversation with career coach Dr. David Petrove continues after this.
You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. Dr. Petrove, let's pick up where we left off in the previous segment. We've been talking about career choices, career path, career longevity, and clearly throughout that, there are a variety of different stages within our lifetime of career, perhaps the educational stage that might lead to the first phase, and then as you suggested, obsolescence of a career, change in your own attitude, your viewpoints, your desires, or just hunger to do something different might bring about changes. Walk us through, if you would, some of the the major or different career stages of development and why it's important to understand it. All right. Well, we typically start working around the age of 18. This coincides with when we complete high school and also would include when we finish our college degree. And this is a time in which an individual is beginning to establish their own identity. And they're separating from their family of origin. They're moving away, especially here in the United States, the idea of independence. They're establishing that aspect of themselves. And once this is done in their mid-20s to early 30s, they're now going through this questioning phase. Who am I becoming? Do I really want to make this location, career path, or relationship permanent? Are my decisions becoming permanent before I want them to? So this can be a time of turmoil for young people. And this is important for them to know so that when it happens, they're not questioning their sanity. They're saying, oh, this is a normal evolution in my development related to my career path. In their early 30s to the age of about 40, This is a time of relative order and stability. People are beginning to develop mastery around the professions that they've followed. They have a dream of what they want to accomplish in life, and then they put a significant amount of energy into achieving that dream. Then in your early 40s through the end of your 40s, you begin to question everything again. It's what we we used to refer to as the midlife midlife crisis. Right, the midlife crisis. (laughs) To me, every every wife that has a husband who went out and bought a sports car knows exactly what that's about. Right, and it's really about reassessing the path that you're taking. Is this the direction that I want to continue to grow? And is this a healthy thing? People look at this typically as a crisis but is it necessarily a crisis or is it a healthy opportunity to do some reevaluation where you have a percentage of your working years behind you and yet a percentage of your working years yet ahead of you and the strength, the energy, the ability, the capacity to reinvent yourself at that stage in life. So it seems to me that it's, it's less of a crisis and more of an opportunity. It is. And it's basically just one more step in that developmental stage So it's like saying, well, you know, in order to walk, we're just going to say that crawling is not so good. Without crawling, you don't develop the muscles that will get you to walking. So this is simply a stage, and people need to not be worried about it. Just say, this is where I am. This is typically a period of disillusionment. And what I also say to people is, you know that idea of your purpose in life? You probably don't really get to what that is. So you're about this age, around the age of 50 is when you get this big, aha, this is really what I'm here to do based upon your experience in life. Then beyond that, age of 50 to around the time where we were typically retiring, this can be one of the most productive times in your life. There's less need to be driven, to be ego-centered, and to compete with others. Finally, you get to that 65 and beyond. Well, we've talked about this, an idea of reinvention. How will that look for you? Is it about more time spent recreationally, relaxing, and backing off on your workload? Or is it full speed ahead? 
I'm going to take on things that I've always wanted to do. Do thoughts of establishing legacy at this point also enter into the picture? Absolutely. What's my legacy going to be? What am I going to leave the planet? How will they remember me? So as someone once pointed out, the most important piece of information on a tombstone, people think the year you were born and the year that you died it's that little that dash, in, that dash in between. <laughs> yep. It's the important one. So basically, uh, in your legacy, it's how you're going to pass on your wisdom that you've accumulated over the years. Let's talk a little bit about your life purpose. What would you want your legacy to be? Would you want to wish to leave the planet more beautiful than when you arrived? Did you want to focus on how altruism made a difference? You want to see more love and compassion in the world? You want to leave the world with more joy and laughter? You want to leave people with a heightened sense of their connection to others. Finally, do you want to leave the planet with people knowing more than they did when you entered onto the life here? These are the things to think about. Again, answers that you give in your 20s will likely be different than they will be as you reach your 60s. So what part of your life does remain stable? Well, your innate talents, and this is what you arrived with. These are the things that you were good at. You might have been really good at organizing. You could have been good at explaining things to others. You look at how you could apply these in the type of work that you do. Identify what you're good at, where you think, isn't everyone just as good at this? No, they're not. Okay, it's a special talent that you've been given. Finally, your basic personality. What is it about you that contributes to the work that you do? Do you like being with people? Do you prefer working alone? Do you like working with your hands? Are you someone who prefers to do thinking more in terms of the work that you do? All of these come into play with making the choices that you do. I think some of that goes back to what you were saying, for instance, being in the restaurant business. If your personality is not one where it's conducive to working in a restaurant, you want to find a different work environment. Yeah, if you've ever watched Hell's Kitchen, <laughs> yes, exactly. you certainly know what that's about. Right. And then what part of me changes over time? Your understanding of who you are. Hopefully, as the years pass, you know more about who you are and how you function in the world and what your purpose is in being here. Your interests are also going to change. And people say, but I'll always have the same interests. That would be if the world around you didn't change. As new technologies are being introduced, as new ways of communicating come into play. This may affect your interest. Gee, I never knew that this was something that could be available to me. I'm wondering, too, if some of that might uh, sort of be the expansion of one's horizons as you move through your career, perhaps you accumulate a level of wealth where in your younger years you could never pursue taking flying lessons because it was beyond your financial grasp. Now you've arrived at a stage in life where you can afford to do that, and suddenly now you're starting to foster this whole new interest. Exactly. And I think that that is something that money can do for people. This whole notion of any kind of attraction to money as being, you know, the root of all evil. Well, if that's your first and foremost desire in life to accumulate it at any cost, that's one issue. But if you use money simply as a resource for doing the things that you love, developing new experiences based on that, it does open the door to new opportunity. The sky is the limit. So what part of me changes over time in addition to the understanding of who you are? It's your interests, what you believe about life will change over time. We're programmed initially by our surroundings to develop a set of beliefs about how we believe the world is. This is basically affected by your experiences, the perceptions that you have, your attitudes, and it's always important to check in with yourself and every once in a while and take a look at what those are and whether or not they're working for you or not. Fresh inventory on your life perspective. Right. How does your lifestyle affect the work that you do? Oftentimes we hear the term work-life balance. I like to use the term work-life integration. I believe that it's all a part of who you are. Your health, your leisure and recreation, the relationships that you have, your living arrangements, your financial security, they all work together and one supports the other. So your work is just a part of that. And again, how important is money? Well, money can be instrumental in carrying out your life purpose. And another word for money is currency, which talks about 
flow and circulation. So if you limit your understanding of where money comes from to sources like it comes from a job, it comes from selling property or inheritances, you're missing the bigger picture. These are only the means, not the source. If you see your work as an expression of your purpose in life and you're clear on what that looks like, it's going to make it easier for you to identify what that would look like. So think about what you value in life, and that's going to help you determine your purpose. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. No portion of this program may be transmitted by third parties in whole or in part without the express written consent of David W. Petrovay, DBA, David Petrovay Coaching. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.